Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast, another horrific discovery underneath the grounds of a former residential school. Another report on China's influence in Canada. We are certainly learning the story of residential schools and the indigenous community, but what about hospitals? There's a new film out. It's coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Let's start off with Dr. Ken Coates, Senior Fellow of the Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues with the Macdonald Laurier Institute, uh, the Federation, uh, the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations, uh, First Nations in Saskatchewan, say, um, and you know, we've heard about this all week, uh, that they were going to be announcing a horrific and shocking discovery uh, this morning. Uh, the discovery is in relation to unmarked graves at the site of the formal Indian residential school. Uh, it was located about 140k uh, east of Regina. Uh, and th- this is what they were saying even earlier on in the week, that the number of unmarked graves will be the most significant substantial to date, and uh, that has certainly come to uh, fruition. And 751 uh, unmarked graves they have detected. And as I've been watching the news conferences over the course of, of the morning on this, uh, they have no idea what, what, what are in these graves, if they are uh, one on top of another, that sort of thing. So, again, uh, the tip of the iceberg, uh, perhaps an understatement here, as uh, Canada uh, looks in the mirror and uh, asks itself what the heck has happened over the last 150 years on this. Uh, it was fascinating uh, watching the news conference this morning. The first two reporters that asked questions were from the international media, one from Germany and one from Spain. So it, that's showing you uh, the attention this story is getting uh, around the world. Let's bring in Dr. Ken Coates, Senior Fellow at the of the Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues with the McDonald laurie Institute and is with us now. Ken, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Just fine, sir. Good to talk to you. Uh, obviously, uh, a day that uh, is 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 going to shock and, and and just horrify Canadians as we have more and more confirmation uh, coming out of in regard to the residential schools and their history. Uh, we certainly knew when we found out about uh, Kamloops, and of course, uh, anyone who uh, who actually read the Truth and Reconciliation report that this was there. There was uh, just no confirmation of it at this time. Your thoughts when, after Kamloops, what we've discovered in Saskatchewan? Well, you know, hold on to your hats. This is only the start of the process. We're going to see more of these as we go across the country. Country. It's, it's tragic and it's sad. Um, one of the saddest parts of this, and this is really hard to sort of say politely, I guess, um, is that Aboriginal people have been saying exactly the same thing for years and were ignored. Um, the, the students told it, the family members told the story for years, historians have been talking about this for 30 years, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People talked about it in the, in the 1990s. Um, we've known about this for a long time, and this is yeah. finally sort of when they actually get out there with the science and sort of discover the, the remains, it's shocking, uh, it's mortifying, but it also tells us how little we have listened to Aboriginal people for the last half century. 
so how is how are indigenous communities taking uh, what is going on this morning with Canadians and 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 what they are facing the truth that they are are are, are facing um, this must be uh, just a, a huge range of emotion from obviously uh, bringing all of these memories back up again to some sort of uh, of uh, confirmation of all of this and, and the rest of the world finally realizing, as you said, what they've been talking about for decades. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that the Aboriginal communities are reacting very strongly to this. It's very emotional. Um, it's traumatizing in a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, many of these, uh, the remains go back to children who died in the 19th century, in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s as well. So, so these are not remains of people who died last week. Um, and so the challenge of connecting them up with their families and giving them names, um, actually doing what we, quite frankly, have done with soldiers after wars, where we spend a huge amount of money uh, finding and identifying remains and giving them back to their families. We now need to do this as a sort of a national process. Um, I, I, think, I think the communities will respond to this with the dignity they've shown for a long time. Uh, they knew the children were, were dead. Uh, they were mortified that, that Canada and Canadians didn't pay too much attention to that. Um, and there's a certain sort of, I'm not sure the right word, it's certainly not pleasure, but a certain comfort in having finding the fact that Canadians are responding so strongly to this. So on the one hand, they're frustrated that they had to say the so, same thing so many times for so many years and not get listened to, but they're also sort of comforted by the fact that when, they, when the truth comes out, the Canadians are actually quite shaken. Uh, how significant have these discoveries been? I mean, these discussions, as you said, have been going on for an awful long time. We always talk of tipping points. Is this going to change things? How significant is this and Kamloops, and which will no doubt be the rest of these residential schools as these investigations continue? H- how significant is this point in Canadian history? So the the op- part of me hopes that this is a major turning point. Uh, the realist tells me that we've been down this line before. Um, this is not the first time we've discovered you know, and, and identified and even acknowledged serious problems in the dealing with Aboriginal folks. Um, I think this, this particular process might remind people of, of why there is such a thing as intergenerational trauma. Um, because you, you think about the 215 young children who died in Kamloops, and that's a, a horrible number, even if it's spread out over 50 or 60 or 70 years. It's a horrible, horrible number to get a hold of. But realize that every single one of those kids who died had friends in the school. And the kids who were in the school and who survived, you know, lived through the fact that their, their classmates died. Now, not just one or two classmates, sometimes a large number of classmates died. And so you end up with this multi-generational trauma that we're, we're finally getting a sort of sense of. At the same time, we have governments, and this is not, you know, the current government has done more on the Indigenous file than most other governments, and we, we deal with incrementalism, you know, and the reality is, is that waiting for government to solve problems that government created is not going to be the solution. We have to figure out a way, and it's not that hard, to make sure that Indigenous peoples have control of their lives, control of their government, control of their children, control of their families, can make their own decisions. So if, if this means something, if Canadians are really upset and angry about this, surely the one thing that can happen is that we can finally back off our incremental approach to Indigenous affairs, make some very dramatic statements and very dramatic steps forward, recognize Indigenous autonomy and call it sovereignty, call it whatever you want, 
and, and allow indigenous peoples to make the choices for themselves. We, we've, we've mucked this up for generations. We can stop doing it now. How do you move from one of the uh, from the past to the present here, uh, and then thinking about the future? How do we move forward? You said it isn't that hard, uh, and dramatic steps need to be taken. Uh, again, we've just jumped a, a big one here, so if it's time to do it, it's now. What can we do in the short term? So, in the short term, listen to Aboriginal folks. Um, listen to what they've been saying. They've been saying it for a long time. And when I say it's not, it's not hard, it, it's simply because we know that it works. And we have cases in the Yukon where we sign modern treaties, Northwest Territories, Indigenous communities have been re-empowered. Uh, they're actually making those decisions for themselves. We have self-government uh, in the, almost 100 First Nations across the country. Uh, we have some really interesting, innovative things being done for urban reserves and things of that sort. We, we know what works. And, and the problem is we have our processes are bogged down in budget structures and the treasury board approvals and ministerial allocations and blah, blah, blah. And, and what happens is what I think we need to listen to First Nations and do something very dramatic. The Royal Commission on Aboriginal People outlined a whole bunch of things we could have done, and we ignored it for 30 years. So maybe now, maybe Canadians are sufficiently shocked and mortified that they're actually going to tell the government to do something big and do it now. When I speak to First Nations leaders, their emphasis clearly is on two things. One is to make sure that they have uh, autonomy, they have the power of self-government in a local or regional sort of context. Um, secondly, that they, they get access to sort of resources necessary uh, to sort of confront the future. You cannot continue to starve Aboriginal people uh, in terms of government resources um, and, and hope them to sort of get better. It just doesn't happen that way. So we've got those two elements. Let's Let's do something dramatic now. Let's take our, our sorrow and our anger and our sadness and convert it to something really meaningful, something with power and with lasting sort of authority. The only way we'll make a difference. Uh, I was watching the news conference earlier this morning, and the first two questions from were from international press, one from Spain, one from Germany. How is the world uh, viewing this, and, and, and how are Canadians viewing this? How, how do you think they're feeling now? So on a global scale, the, the interesting thing, of course, is that Canada has a sort of do-gooder image around the world. We work yeah. very hard to project ourselves as sort of a super liberal nation and, you know, lots of lots of virtue signaling left, right and center and lecturing other countries on how to do things well. So, in fact, other countries sort of are always a bit shocked and not 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 displeased when they discover that that the image in Canada is not all that accurate. And so, in fact, this is playing up globally. There's lots of interest in what's going on. There's lots of people asking, well, so what, what, how did this actually happen? What does it mean to the communities? Um, on the Canadian side, it's really interesting. We tend to be, our, our interest in Indigenous affairs tend to be a mile wide and an inch deep. We don't burrow down and look at what the serious under, underpinnings are. Um, you know, for example, we're, we're tearing down statues of Johnny McDonald, which I think is one of the silliest exercises because it's not going to produce anything. It doesn't make life better for Indigenous communities, and that's where our, our emphasis should be. But it, even more importantly, it masks that we blame Johnny McDonald. We're ignoring the fact that the overwhelming majority of Canadians in the 1880s and 1890s supported residential schools. They still supported them in the 1950s and 1960s and even the 1970s. So you cannot personalize this and make it so, let's take down Johnny McDonald's statue and now we feel all vindicated. That's nonsense. Canada has as its root a series of 
roots a series of very serious mistreatment of indigenous people on a whole variety of fronts. We must do something to sort of recognize that, acknowledge it, and make it make it our collective responsibility. Interestingly, one of the big issues we're facing in Canada now um, is that we have so many new Canadians who made wonderful contributions to the country and are certainly more than welcome here. Then it's been a wonderful addition, but they do not have the historical memory or the historical guilt that the that the European Canadians uh, will mm. have about these mm-hmm. kinds of issues. And we have to make it a collective responsibility. New Canadians, old Canadians, what would Stephen Harper used to call them, old stock Canadians. Everybody has to take this on as a responsibility. It is a, a stain on our national character, but it, it's it's a historic stain, absolutely. But it's also a contemporary one. Because we still deal with things so incrementally, slow, so slowly, and we hold back on the dramatic statements. You know, we think UNDRIP was a great thing. I don't think the UNDRIP legislation in Canada is simply a promise to make promises. So we don't even know what the promises are. We're going to have to wait for a couple of years to see. That's not speed. That's not, that's not really paying attention to what actually has to go on. We need much more dramatic action that actually matches the horror we feel. And so if for some reason, everybody, if has, you know, people who have children, mortified the thought of losing their children and sending them off to school, you know, that they can understand the pain a little bit better this week than they could a couple of weeks ago. So uh, that helps. But will it translate into anything? I'm not sure. You know, you bring up a very valid point about the statues, Ken, and I've had this discussion on the show several times. Uh, and, 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 you know, everybody is looking for something to blame. And again, maybe, maybe the discovery of the 751 souls below this former residential school will finally, uh, correct all of this. But it, it's as if we're looking Canadian, Canadians. It's not me. It wasn't me. It was this leader. It was Ryerson. It was, uh, McDonald. It was whoever. And, you know, right up until the last school, uh, closed from, mcdonald to say trudeau in the 70s well everybody voted for them our parents our grandparents our great-grandparents so how like what is the rest of the country walking around oblivious while the leaders are making all of these terrible decisions i can't believe how we're 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 looking to these symbols to somehow rid us of this guild and as you say it's doing nothing to to move the cause forward but but merely uh you know something that makes us feel better and and makes us feel like we're doing something with this situation when in fact right up until Kamloops and Saskatchewan we're all guilty of the same thing I, I think you're, you're, you're spot on in, in, the, in the early part of the 20th century after the 1950s the residential schools used to have booths at, at agricultural fairs where you could come in and see how, how the young, young indigenous people what they called Indians at the time were, were showing their signs of civilization and advancement to use the language of the time um, you know, residential schools were seen as a, a, a hallmark of Canadian generosity. That's the part that's frustrating. It's not as though, you know, everybody said, oh, that, that's just something we're going to take, take over in a corner. People were proud of residential schools and proud of what they were doing. They didn't know what was going on inside. They didn't pay any attention to the problems that children had in the schools or upon graduation. They simply did not understand the complexity of it because they were too busy celebrating it. And that's the problem we have right now. But if you if you were to sort of open up your phone lines right now, you'd find that at least half of the people who are calling in, I my guess, would be saying, oh, we're already giving First Nations too much. And who's this crazy person who thinks we should give more to First Nations people? You know, it's, 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 a, it's the wrong approach. 
Um, mm. The poverty of Indigenous people is the poverty of all of Canada. Injustice toward Indigenous people is injustice to all of Canada. And, and, and it's, it's incumbent on all of us to take responsibility for this. But I would, I'll tell you what I would love to see. I would love to see instead of this sort of incremental things we're seeing where the government's saying, oh, here's $10 million, go and, go and do some, some ground radar work or whatever else. I would like to see the parliament leaders get together and, and, and agree that this would be a completely nonpartisan issue, that it would not be a liberal, conservative, or an NDP issue. Put that rhetoric and party politics rhetoric in the back corner and sit down with the indigenous representatives from across the country and basically say, we have to do something better and we have to do it now. Um, incrementalism basically transfers the, the historic weight or the weight of history onto the current generation. So every year we, we delay is another set of hundreds of suicides, um, um, self-abuse and violence in Indigenous communities, uh, thousands more Indigenous student, young people going to jail unnecessarily, and on and on. So while we delay, they, as First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people, bury, carry the burden of this. And, and the consequences are huge. Uh, yeah. But they, don't, they aren't for the rest of us because we, we spend a little bit of money. It doesn't really affect us too much. Dr. Ken Coates with us, Senior Fellow of Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues with the McDonald laurier Institute, talking about the most recent discovery of uh, 751 unmarked graves below a Saskatchewan residential school. Ken, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Sam Cooper, Global News National Investigative Journalist. Uh, I love following Sam's stuff, and uh, he has always got his uh, uh, nose to the ground on what is happening between Canada and China relations. And there's a current, uh, current article, which you'll find on the global site, China-Russia exploding, exploiting rather high-tech and hybrid warfare, costing up to $100 billion per year in Canada. Uh, hostile and military intelligence forces are targeting Canada in a new sophisticated, multifaceted type of warfare using a range of tools from criminal gangs to cyber hackers to high-tech companies such as Huawei and China Telecom, the author of a newly released National uh, Security Report alleges. To talk more about all of this, Sam Cooper with us from Global News, National Investigative Journalist. Sam, again, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well. Thanks for having me. What is the significance of this report compared to the others that you have written about? The significance of this report is it points to this alarming crime pattern of hybrid warfare being driven by especially hostile uh, intelligence agencies and militaries in China and Russia. Uh, I know there are other countries involved from my sources, but this report is the first time I've read in a Canadian high-level intelligence document. It was created for Public Safety Canada, who's in charge of CSIS and the RCMP, in 2019. And it lays out this alarming crime trend about uh, how the Chinese Communist Party really has uh, a new type of warfare plan targeting Western nations. Canada, of course, is the focus of this report, and it, it explains how... Cybercrime is a growing problem. It's state-sponsored, again, by countries including China and Russia, and it could cost Canadian businesses, government, individuals, institutes up to $100 billion per year. Uh, the report really points towards how 
high technology, rather the, the future of it, 5G networks, we will live in growing, growingly populated, densely packed smart cities where we're all interconnected through 5G technology in ways we don't even yet understand. But the author of the report basically says this will be a new uh, essentially battlefield where spying on uh, targets, uh, you know, people will be uh, targeted for perhaps their dissident views against China's government in Canadian cities. And this will be short of, uh, it'll be information warfare, political warfare, spying warfare, not armed conflict, but really the goal of the conflict from China's perspective and Russia is the same. That is to, to gain supremacy uh, over Western nations using this new form of warfare. Many have said uh, in the past that uh, China will w- win World War III without even firing a shot. This is a long-term strategy, isn't it? That's their plan. It goes back to, uh, as history buffs know, the, the general Sun Tzu said, you capture an enemy by, uh, by, by really influencing them, by capturing their elite. You capture them. You should want to capture them and gain territory, or rather influence over territory without spilling any blood. That's the perfect type of warfare. And really, I've reported on uh, how the Canadian technology leader Nortel fell in what the experts told me was an example of hybrid warfare. That is, uh, China's military stole the the crown jewels. Canada's 5G leadership was was apparent in, you know, 15 years ago. We were going to be the leaders of the world in this technology. China stole technology from Nortel, and it went directly to Huawei and other tech giants, according to the the evidence. And and really, this report I've reported on today uh, unpacks the the details of how that happened and allegedly how Huawei and others have been involved directly in ongoing espionage inside Canada. I should add right there that uh, the company strongly denies being involved in espionage at all, and they declined to comment on this particular report for Global News. You know, even your point, Sam, on on Nortel and Huawei, I mean, that story's been around for a while, yet it doesn't seem to resonate with people. That You know, nobody seems to remember the power that, Nor- uh, that Nortel had and that now it's virtually Huawei. They, and nobody seems to be really interested in the story. Is that accurate? I think it's accurate, and I think it, you and others probably have sensed a pattern in my reporting. I'm, I'm trying to dig up uh, what is known by Canadian police and intelligence uh, because they say that this should just be the people in Canada should be lighting their hair on fire to use mm-hmm. the term, uh, knowing that so much of their uh, Canadians uh, quality of life and wealth has been stolen under the radar. And it's not just Canada. Of course, it's happens uh, around the West. We heard last year, the FBI reported that uh, China was using international their power over uh, cyber hackers and gangsters to steal vaccine, uh, you know, vaccine IP, intellectual property during the pandemic, targeting countries around the world. So this is a, this is what I do believe that a Canadian citizen should realize. The implications of this new report are that Canada has already lost uncountable billions of dollars of wealth, and it's beyond that. You're I'm speaking to individual Canadians, your your democracy is at stake because this new type of warfare is already occurring with dis- disinformation where 
a quick example, we know that uh, Canadian parliamentari- parliamentarians stood to uh, chastise China for the genocide in Xinjiang, and automatically, in uh, many media outlets that my sources say are under the influence, and this would agree with what uh, this report says today, under uh, disinformation influence from Beijing, media outlets in Canada uh, tried to counter that message from <laughs> Canadians' elected officials. Uh, and why is the government reluctant to speak up about this? You know, we're, we're seeing this right now with the two scientists in Winnipeg that were the, the two Chinese scientists in Winnipeg that were fired. We're trying to find out more information about why they were, uh, you know, redacted reports. Uh, a, a non-parliamentary a citizen is called before the House to answer this. And now we have the Liberal Party uh, taking the speaker to court over the release of this information. So, again, here's more information to shed light on this that it seems we, we, we seem to be sweeping under the rug. Why are we doing that? Well, I think sweeping under the rug is the the right terminology, because as my story shows, uh, Canada, the Trudeau government, hasn't spoken up and taken a an explicit action to bar Huawei from 5G. Let's be clear, this report was filed in 2019, essentially saying vendors such as Huawei, supported by state intelligence agencies, will leverage 5G in political influence and espionage. The warning could not be more blunt to Canada's government about three years ago now. And as you know, for the past three years, it's been a hot topic. Would Canada with the Trudeau government, bar Huawei, they haven't. Now, industry realizing uh, really the, the, the shift of the breeze in the United States and, and Britain and Australia has gone ahead and started to build 5G networks without Huawei. But make no mistake, I, it's, quite, it's quite likely that Huawei is looking for backdoors still into Canada's 5G system, and the government uh, ha- has not taken a stance yet. Which is very bizarre and sort of leaving it to the businesses to say, well, this is going nowhere, so we'll make the decision before the government has to. Meanwhile, as we all watch Hockey Night in Canada, there's Huawei's sponsor right up above uh, everybody's head over this Canadian institution. It just makes me shake mine. Um, what about the other allies on this? Now that Trump is out of the White House, it seems there's a more uh, united response to this. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, Trump could be uh, seen in a few ways. He could be seen as very strong on China, but he could also be seen as, through his uh, rhetoric, really uh, not helping allies out at all and not being good at building sort of, uh, let's just say, a big tent response among Western allies against uh, China's economic and tech infiltration. But you're right. Uh, Anyone that had hopes uh, that that Huawei Canada would sort of slip in when Trump was put out of office is is now seeing the reality that President Biden has gone even further towards uh, listing of military corporations, including Huawei, and barring investors from interacting with those companies. So uh, the reaction in in Australia. In, in Washington, D.C., they, they must understand that in some ways business is taking the lead in Canada and, and aligning really more with Five Eyes allies than Canada's government is explicitly right now. I should add that, uh, of course, we need to understand that the two Michaels uh, held hostage uh, in, in China now as a result of the Huawei uh, Mun Wanzhou uh, uh, detention in Canada this, of course, is a, a very difficult situation for Canada to be seen as being tough on Huawei with that uh, hanging over them. 
Sam Cooper with us, Global News National Investigative Journalist. You can see his report uh, on the Global site, and make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Sam, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good luck. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tragic and and sad day for Canadians as we find out yet uh, of another residential school, uh, this time in Saskatchewan, and the numbers are just astounding. And get ready because this is just the beginning. There's like 150 residential school sites across the country, uh, and uh, you could be finding similar discoveries in each and every one of them, which is why they all need to be uh, investigated. 751 unmarked graves uh, reported this morning uh, under a Saskatchewan residential school site, um, and. Uh, I don't know. I, I do think this is a turning point. I do think this will change things. It certainly has uh, opened up this Canadian's eyes, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. Uh, oddly enough, uh, premiering this week, The Unforgotten is a new film exposing the experience of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis within the healthcare system across the five stages of life, birth, childhood, adolescence, adulthood, and elderhood. The film takes a raw look at systemic racism, the impacts of colonialism, and the ongoing trauma experienced by Indigenous peoples. And to talk to, uh, more about all of this, Dr. Ewan Affleck is with us, executive producer of The Unforgotten, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott. Thank you very much. First of all, tell us about this film, uh, where we can see it. Give us the details. Well, the film, uh, yeah, you sort of introduced what the film is about. Um, it, it takes a, 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 a look at uh, stories of, of inequities in healthcare care in, for Indigenous people in Canada. Um, it's available uh, online at uh, the unforgotten, one word, dot cma dot ca. Uh, how did you get involved in this project? Um, I started it, basically. Um, I, I'm a physician. I've been a non-Indigenous. I think that's important to acknowledge up front. And uh, I have spent my career after I graduated from McGill University about 30 years ago working in uh, the north, the far north Arctic and subarctic Canada uh, with Indigenous populations and uh, gradually came to understand that I was pretty ignorant about the history of health services in Canada and its relationship to uh, Inuit, Métis, and First Nations people. So what was your objective in this film? Well, the objective was to, to tell stories um, about our history, the, the, the fact that... Um, the Canadian healthcare system has not uh, equitably delivered services to certain segments of the population, and that it has not always been used for the delivery of health services, much like residential school. The, the, the healthcare system has been used for other purposes. How long were you working on this project? Three and a half years, and, and you said in your introduction, you know, coincidentally, this film is coming out this week. Mm-hmm. Um, we started the project around three and a half years ago. The first thing I did was go to some of my Indigenous colleagues and said, is there a place for a non-Indigenous 
um, person to be involved in this project, and they said yes, and they said we'll work with you on it. So the the film is made by a, a large group of indigenous and non-indigenous filmmakers, uh, physicians, artists, musicians, um, and yeah, we started it three and a half years ago, and you know, most recently with the Joyce Ashaquan tragic events around her death in Quebec, and more recently the the discovery of these mass graves. Uh, it, it is uh, the timing is is, is coincidental, but uh, these issues really are coming to light. Uh, what was it like for, what is it like for you, a doctor who you're obviously trained to look after people's well-being to see this injustice over the years and learn about it? Can I ask you a question, Scott? Did you watch the film? No, I haven't seen it yet. You haven't seen it. Um, um, you know, and, and that's, it's an interesting question. What, what, led me to embark on this project was a sense of of, of uh, disempowerment, really. I mean, you're, you're caring for people one at a time. We do episodic care. We see a patient. And I still work as a clinician uh, part-time. Um, but there's the, 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 the so many grander issues that play here that... that I really felt that these stories needed to be heard. It is time for us to listen and maybe begin having a difficult discussion about our history because things need to change on a structural and systemic basis. Uh, and when you're at the front line, you, you feel uh, disempowered often to, to change things. Um, so that, that's really what led to the film. Considering where we are and the discovery we're making in the last several weeks, although, again, not new information, in, re- in regard to residential schools, uh, the lack of history, the lack of, of knowledge, lack of records for any uh, of this, can we surprise that the hospital system was, was the same? Yeah, and it's not strictly the hospital system, and there are all kinds of levels that this has occurred at, and so the, as you say, the film is broken up into segments. The, the, we look through the stages of life at birth, childhood, adolescence, adulthood, and elderhood. And the issues we look at um, are the forced and coerced sterilization of Indigenous women. That's the birth section. Childhood looks at the, the um, abuse of uh, child abuse and segregated Indian hospitals. The last one, which closed in 1996. I mean, this is not remote history. We look at the the, the current um, epidemic of suicide among adolescents in, in Nunavut and how that relates to to what happened in the in the fifties, sixties, and seventies. And there's a direct link there. Um, we look at race-based bias in health service that results in the death of an individual uh, in Winnipeg. Um, and lastly, the expulsion of uh, in elderhood, the last section, the expulsion of of um, Indigenous people from traditional lands where they were practicing land-based healing and traditional medicines. And so this sort of covers a, a broad scope, and it covers a scope across the country um, and across cultural groups, very distinct cultural groups that really experience the same thing. Tell us about Indian-only hospitals. Yeah, they were called Indian hospitals, 
Um, so there were many of them across the country. And the last one closed, as I said, in 1996. They were segregated. And um, there was a law in Canada that if you were Indigenous, you could be forced to go to the hospital, uh, much like, and, and, and be obliged to stay there and to leave was illegal. So it was almost, they became almost like prisons. You, you, you and I, if we choose not to go to a hospital, we have the right to say, no, I'm not going. You know, our, our care is our own. Um, our own will declares whether we wish to be cared for, but this was not so for Indigenous people. So the the story that we tell about this, the, the young boy, he was put in the hospital uh, at the age of seven and had spent two and a half years there without any contact with his family against his will. Man, um, it, you know, it surprises me, Doctor, considering how we now talk about mental illness, how we now, and that's a great thing. I mean, you know, the let's talk days and, and what have you and, 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 and dealing with our demons, yet for some reason we can't look at this community and understand what they have gone through. Um, do you think, what do you think the impact of not only uh, your film, The Unforgotten, but the revelations around these residential homes. How, how will that have an impact? Is this, are we at a crossroads? Are we at a turning point? I hope we are. And, and I cannot emphasize, Scott, that my, I need to acknowledge my personal ignorance. Um, I, I didn't understand this. Um, I'm in the same boat you are, Doctor. I mean, I think a, mo- yeah. a lot of us are feeling the same way, like we've had the wool pulled over Absolutely. our eyes. But again, we're all responsible here. We are. And and so that's what led, led to this film. You know, it's it's this, we, we need to listen. And it just tells stories uh, that, that we need to listen to and to have these difficult conversations. And um, so we are in the same boat, and I hope this is a, a watershed moment. You know, I hope it is a crossroads um, where we begin to to have these difficult conversations and then acknowledge a different history. The Canadian healthcare system we have believed is the best in the world. Well, there's a dark part of it that we need to begin talking about. Why did the CMA get involved in this? I, I can't... Um, congratulate them enough for this you know this is not a traditional thing for an organization like the cma to do to make a film first of all and and to go into a very difficult space this is not easy these stories are challenging and uh, they were willing to do that and it's that sort of leadership we need right now Uh, and my hope with the film is that other organizations medical schools nursing schools um, you know, uh, departments of health and social services, regulate, health regulatory agencies will use the film and, and for the purposes of, of initiating a new dialogue and reinventing, reimagining healthcare. So the CMA is, is showing leadership here and courage, and, and uh, I invite other organizations and health sector leaders to, to follow suit. You've been working on this project. You said it took you three and a half years, roughly, uh, working on this project, the, the, the film, The Unforgotten. 
Um, and again, the, the timing of its release today, which obviously is coincidental with the information that we're finding out, um, is incredible. How have our or or have our attitudes changed from when you started doing this three years ago uh, and looking into it and the research and, and, and just where we are, where we were back then compared to where we are now? There seems to be a gathering. Um, um, there's, there's evidence. I mean, they had the TRC report, certainly, um, in 2014, I believe, 2015. I can't remember if it was released. Um, we've had now the evidence of the graves, the Joyce Heshaquan uh, event in, in tragedy in, in Quebec. But there's a host of of, of stories, a, a massive number of stories that, that we have not heard. Um, but I, I, I hope that there is a growing understanding that we need to um, change a little bit and reconcile our history. What was it like doing the research for this for this film and in interacting with the indigenous community and gaining their trust to have their story told the right way? Well, the film, most of the film, who most of the people who worked on the project are indigenous. Mm-hmm. So there's Leela Gilday, who she just won a Juno Award, her second. She she was the music director. Stefan Gladu is the creative director. Uh, he's also featured in the film and is a remarkable artist. Alika Lafontaine, who just got elected as the president-elect of the Canadian Medical Association, is a senior subject matter advisor and. Um, so, uh, you know, and the list goes on um, in terms of, of the crew. There's many, many people involved in this. And what was so hugely satisfying is that we were all able to work together as a team um, with common passion and purpose on this project. And I, I, I learned so, so much. I cannot emphasize this. And there is a way for us to work together. It's a film as a microcosm of what Canada can be. Uh, obviously, as you said, you're you're non-indigenous, but uh, you know, obviously, uh, working on the project and and interacting with the community and such. How do you think they are viewing what non-indigenous people are going through right now? Um, uh, obviously, the indigenous community going. This must unearth a, a tremendous amount of uh, of terrible memories, tragedy uh, to have to go through this again. But the positive is that you know, you know, they're they're listening. They can hear us per se. How do you think the indigenous community will view Canada accepting this and processing this and being so ignorant to it? You know, I'm really reluctant to comment on what other people are feeling or imagining. Um, so that, that, that answering that really doesn't make me feel comfortable. I will say that certainly the film um, is traumatizing to watch, um, both, uh, you know, and, and but an important thing in this point has been made about it is that the, the courage of the individuals, because four of the five sections of the film are real stories about real people who showed huge courage in being willing to share their stories for the greater good 
and I cannot um, thank them enough for their their courage. Um, and it is very difficult to tell these stories and to relive the trauma. Um, and perhaps that's one of the beauties of a film is that then it's recorded and it can be used in perpetuity without needing to re-traumatize the individuals who had the courage to tell them in the first place. How will Canadian healthcare view this? Um, how will they react? Will, will there be change? Well, I, I'm, I'm hopeful people will notice the film, you know, films, uh, you know, you can put out a film and it just gets buried and no one mm-hmm. ever looks at it or, or views it. So I'm hopeful there'll be uptake and early signs are that there's quite a lot of interest in the film. Um, um, you know, we, we were very intentional in the making of the film not to assign blame, not to, that we just want the stories to stand for themselves and to allow the viewer to come in and, and, and draw their own conclusions from these raw human experiences that are related. Um, it, it, the, the film does not editorialize. It just provides a, a, a series of stories in a history and, and relates it to the present day. So I'm hoping, you know, there's, as human beings, we all can relate to stories, right, to, to stories of people. And our hope is that these stories can lead us to a place where we can begin uh, having a dialogue and a discourse uh, about these challenging issues. And, and the film will add, will contribute to other work people are doing across the country, academics and indigenous leaders and others in the same uh, domain. Dr. Ewan Affleck with us, executive producer of The Unforgotten, premiering this week, uh, The Unforgotten, a new film exposing the experiences of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis within the healthcare uh, across five stages, uh, five stages of healthcare. You can find it on the Canadian Medical Association site, uh, theunforgotten.cma.ca. Uh, doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Congratulations on this. Be well. Good luck. Thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate the time. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.